You can turn in your Bible to Song of Songs, look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and the text is also printed in the bulletin for you on the next page. If, uh, if you don't know where the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon is, it's right after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, that area. So <clears throat> it's in the wisdom literature. Um, so a bit by way of introduction now, uh, often as we begin a new series on a, a different book of the Bible, I'll say something like, now this author's work really is a literary masterpiece. It's unsurpassed in elegance and intricacy and depth of meaning. And um, I mean that quite literally as we look at the Song of Songs. It is actually a work of art. Um, And so I'll be so bold as to call it the best poetry ever written. Dare you to find a better poem, (laughs) a better poem ever written. It's, It's, after all, divine poetry. It's written by the Holy Spirit of God himself who inspired the human author. And more than poetry, it's a song. It's the Song of Songs. That's a Hebrew sort of an idiomatic uh, superlative like you see in the scriptures a few places. The Holy of Holies, right? The, the holiest place of all the holy places. Or the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, right? Um, it's a superlative like that. It's the Song of Songs, which means it's the divine song. It's the most sublime song. It's the godliest song. Uh, The song with all the gravity of eternity that's sung at the heart of the cosmos, the singing of which is the point of all creation. So the simple fact that this is a song and the simple fact that it's in the Bible, it's part of the canon of the Holy Scriptures, it really helps us to understand the Song of Songs and to interpret it. Uh, Robert Jensen has a commentary on, uh, on this book. He says that it is neither narrative nor didactic. Right? So it's not the kind of stuff you'd find in one of the Pauline epistles. Uh, or it's, it's not one of the kind of things you'd find in a historical work. Um, it's neither narrative nor didactic, but lyrical. Theology intended to be perceived obliquely and savored for its images and allusions. The beauty of these poems is part of their theological meaning. So this is theology that sings. And the fact that that's in the Bible, it teaches us something about the God who put it there. Right? Uh, it teaches us something about the God who canonizes this song. James Hamilton is another commentator on this book. Um, he says that poetry is by nature deliberately evocative and suggestive. And it calls us to long for the beauty that it details. That's what poetry is. That's what poetry does. That's how it works. Um, so, I don't know, you, you've probably read C.S. Lewis or uh, you've probably read Tolkien, right? Reading those kinds of authors makes me wish I could write like that. Or hearing Handel's Messiah or hearing Bono sing, it makes me want to sing like that, right? Or uh, seeing a Van Gogh makes me wish I could paint or wish I could visit those places that are depicted in the paintings, wish I could experience those things, wish I could see everything in those subjects that the artists see in those subjects, right? I wish I, it, they're sharing their vision of reality through their art, and that's the effect of good art, is it makes us long to share that vision, right? Um, so the Song of Solomon is, like I said, it's wisdom literature. It belongs with those books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in the Bible. It's wisdom literature. It teaches us a unique 
kind of wisdom, and it teaches us wisdom uniquely. Um, it creates longings in us for what is good and for what is true and what is beautiful and what is godly. It creates those longings, or it gives expression to the longings that often elude our own articulation of them. Uh, and in doing so, it gives us insight into God's kind of wisdom. Right? This is God's kind of wisdom here in this song. The song sings of the deep things of the world that are hidden in plain sight. Right? The song sings of lovers and of the whole world as a world of their love. James Hamilton again says uh, that the song sings for what we would long for in our hearts if we knew how to hope for heaven. The song sings a melody rich with reminiscent beauty, a beauty that resonates with us, a haunting beauty so sharp it sometimes cuts us open and lays us bare with a longing for what we do not now have. The beauty of the Song of Songs has an Eden-like loveliness. It has a harmony a radiance, a shining innocence with a man and woman gazing on one another's glory without an indication of any shame. The closest we get back to the Garden of Eden in the rest of the Bible is in the poetry of the Song of Songs. So, <clears throat> sorry, long introduction here. In terms of an in interpretive approach to how we're going to look at this text to try to understand this text over the next several weeks, uh, the song has uh, has been compared to a lock for which the key has been lost. <laughs> um, the, the, historically, the song has been more broadly interpreted than most other books of Scripture. Uh, there's there's a lot of commentaries written on the Song of Songs, more than, than a lot of other books of Scripture. Many Christians have no idea what to do with it or even why it's in the Bible at all. Right? Um, since it's poetry, I'll take a couple simple interpretive clues from this, since it's poetry, since it's a song, since it is artwork, we will interpret it carefully, but actually liberally. Liberally, maybe that's not a word you think of when you think of interpreting the scriptures. <laughs> we will interpret it carefully, but liberally, because it's evocative, and it's metaphorical, and it's suggestive, and it creatively engages us on many different levels, like good poetry, like a good song. Uh, in Galatians 4, Paul validates the appropriate use of allegorical interpretation, so we're not going to be afraid of that. Um, and since it's biblical, since this song is located in the canon of the Holy Scriptures, we will interpret it spiritually. That is, we need the Spirit's help right, for illumination as we pray. Uh, we need to understand the Spirit's intent in all the Scriptures to point us to Jesus Christ, to center our attention on Him in every word of the Bible, and we need to enjoy the community of the Spirit who brings us together around Christ as we read this together. Right? So Bernard of Clairvaux, um, sorry, I can't remember when he lived, but he's usually classed together with mystics from several hundred years ago. Uh, it is everywhere, this is what he says, it is everywhere love that speaks. If anyone hopes to grasp the sense of what he reads, let him love. Whereas someone who does not love will hear or read this song of love in vain. In vain. So there's a couple different levels that we'll probably look at each week where, where um, uh, the text, kind of on the face of it, the, the overt sense, the overt meaning that's just 
right there is about a man and a woman in love. And then there's a theological meaning to it. And then since there's a theological meaning, since this really does have something to do with Christ and his church, with God and your soul, um, but it's expressed in the terms that it is, it's put in the, the, the terms of physicality and sexuality, it's going to kind of loop back around and we'll talk about the theological meaning of, uh, of our bodies and our relationships and our marriages and sexuality, right? So um, those are kind of some interpretive helps along the way for us. But ultimately, the Song of Songs is about Jesus Christ, the beloved, the true king, the bridegroom, the finest among 10,000, whose love is the very flame of God, stronger than death. And as we come to this song, we come to him. So let's pray for his help as we consider his word. Let's pray, and then I'll read the passage. Father, we always need your help, maybe particularly now with a text that... um, It seems difficult for us to resonate with Um, in our culture, the way that we often think of Christianity. We pray that you would um, grant us a deeper perspective on who you are and what you've done for us in the gospel as we consider this song. We pray that you would fill out and, uh, and augment where it's needed our vision of the Christian life and spirituality. We pray that you would fix our eyes on Christ, who is at the center of your of your word everywhere. We pray for your spirit's help as we consider your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh, song, uh, the song of songs, which is Solomon's, right? A lot of time in my Bible, the bold title is the song of Solomon, right? Um, Solomon. It may be that the song was written by him. Or it may be that uh, it belongs to him as by the author's dedication. Or it may be that it was written about him, about the things that are within the scope of his kind of wisdom. Um, In any case, I I don't know if we can come to a conclusion on that. Uh, I think it's common uh, to think that he wrote it, but, uh, but that it's being written about sort of an idealistic relationship between a man and a woman. Um, So whether he wrote it or it was written about him or whatever, whatever the case is, uh, to interpret the song well, I think we need to know who he was. We need to know who Solomon was. He was the greater son of the great King David. The greater son of David. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that he would raise up his offspring and establish his kingdom, that his son would build a house for God's name. He would build a temple that God would be to this one a father and that he would be a son to God and that the throne of David's son would be established forever. That was before Solomon's birth. And then in 2 Samuel 12, as Solomon was born, David named him Solomon, which is, uh, it comes from that word shalom, which means peace. Um, and it says that the Lord loved him 
and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. He's the beloved of the Lord. In 2 Chronicles 1, uh, God asked him, you know what? Ask me whatever you want. Ask me what you, what you desire. And Solomon said that he, uh, rather than asking God for things like wealth or honor or fame or power, God, uh, Solomon asked for wisdom and knowledge to be able to rule God's people well. And God delighted in that request, and so God granted him wisdom and wealth and honor and a great kingdom. And then in 1 Kings 4, it says that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, the queen of Sheba, Ethiopia. Uh, is one of those folks who came and brought tribute for his great wisdom. His wisdom touched on what we might consider to be um, strange things in terms of biblical wisdom. His wisdom touched on all things in life and in the world. He, it says in First Kings 4, he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in the Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. And he spoke also of beasts and of birds, and of reptiles, and of fish. He knew a lot about the natural world. Solomon wrote Psalms uh, 72 and, and 127. He wrote much of the book of Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes. First, First Kings 4 again says that he spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. That's a lot of songs. Ask any, any uh, musician to write that many songs in his life. So on top of being the greatest king every, uh, uh, Israel ever knew, and the wisest, he was a botanist, a geologist, I mean a, a biologist, sorry, and, um, and a singer-songwriter. And his knowledge of the glories of the world are reflected in his kind of wisdom. His wisdom is one of, of life and everything in the world, right? So at the end of the day, um, Solomon betrayed his wisdom and he disobeyed God. He had amassed wives. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I can only deal with one barely, right? <laughs> 700 wives and 300 concubines. And 1 Kings 11 says that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Right? So um, all the hopes that God's people would pin on great promises, like in 2 Samuel 7, where God's promising that David's greater son would have a, a throne and a rule established that would, would endure forever. Uh, those hopes would not be met in this one, not in this one. Uh, the result of his life and his uh, disobedience and his amassing of wives and concubines was the fracturing of his kingdom. The kingdom broke apart. It was divided between his two sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So Solomon, in all of his glory and all of his wisdom, he merely pointed forward to another yet greater son of David, the one to whom wise men brought gifts from afar at his very birth, the one whose wisdom in his youth confounded the teachers in the temple. 
the beloved of the Lord, the Son of God whose heart was wholly true, the King of kings whose reign of peace would endure forever and ever. This is who Solomon points forward to with his life and his wisdom and his writings. The Song of Songs sings ultimately of this one. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's God the Son incarnate, God in the flesh, God with our humanity, God with us, the one in whom creator and creature are united forever. He's the true wise man. And Augustine says in his confessions, which are written in the style of a prayer to God, it's it's really lovely theology done, addressed directly, second person to God. And so he says that you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless. We have a yearning, a longing, a desire, a restlessness in our hearts until we find our rest in God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the God-man. Our verses sing the bride's restless passion for her bridegroom. The song opens with a rather startling and immodest cry. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Like the sinful woman who wet the Lord's feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, didn't stop kissing his feet, and poured her expensive ointment on his feet, whose many sins were forgiven so that she loved him much. We desire greatly the Lord's intimate favor, his gentle touch, divine reconciliation, the kiss of peace, the joy of our salvation. God the Son became incarnate, and he took on a human nature, and he took on a mouth. He took a mouth so that he could kiss his bride with the kiss of life, so that he could speak forgiveness to his bride, cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word, so that he could breathe the Holy Spirit upon her as he did his disciples after his resurrection, so that he could live forever with us as the great bridegroom with his bride in the new heavens and the new earth, in resurrected, physical, real, but glorious bodies. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. It's, a, it's an obvious analogy for love, wine, isn't it? It's intoxicating, it makes you lightheaded. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins or young maidens love you. So on his ascension into heaven, after his death and after his resurrection, on Christ's ascension into heaven as king of the cosmos, the Christ, which means the anointed one, the one who's been anointed with God's own love and power as he was anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, he anointed his bride with his own anointing. He poured out his own spirit upon the church. Romans 5 says, the Holy Spirit is the very love of God poured out upon us, put inside of us. And Ephesians 5 says that to be filled with him is better than being drunk with wine. To be filled with him means walking in wisdom, Ephesians 5 says. To be filled with him 
means living with ultimate reference to Jesus Christ in everything, singing to the Lord and to each other and loving well in all of our relationships, especially our marriages, Ephesians 5 says. So if you're wondering why I can, I can trace kind of a thread through uh, our series for the year from Genesis 1 through 3 to Ephesians, to the book of Ephesians, to this, the Song of Solomon, because great themes of wisdom and sexual love and intimacy and union with Christ that's expressed in our marriages, it's all tied together. There's a strand that runs through these things, right? Um, as we sang earlier, I love the name of Jesus, Emmanuel, Christ the Lord, like fragrance on the breezes, his name abroad is poured. It's a quote from our passage. It's, um, it's something that you can only sing, I love the name of Jesus. Your love is better than wine. It's something that you can only sing when you know the love of Christ, when you have his love, when you have his spirit inside of you awakening you to love him and to desire union with him, intimacy with him. Verse 4, draw me after you, let us run. My wife's in the nursery, right? Um, My wedding band, it's engraved in titanium, that, that verse draw me after you, let us run. We thought uh, as young kids who didn't really know how to read the Bible well, we were thinking, wow, this is like a a life verse, you know, the the man's leading the woman and they're off after great things and on mission for God and things like that. You know what really it means is um, carry me with you into the bedroom, let's hurry. Let's hurry. She's urging him, let's let's make haste, right? Draw me after you, let us run. So now I joke, Uh, that my ring is sort of a token that can be redeemed whenever. Um, Look, you say this to me, and it's engraved in titanium. (laughs) Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. As a deer pants for flowing streams, Psalm 42, pants for flowing streams. My soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So is yours a a disinterested, noncommittal type of spirituality? Do you know this kind of passion for Christ? Do you know what it means to long for him like this? This kind of abandon? Draw me after you. Let us run. Why do you come to worship? if not to be carried into the king's chambers? Does your heart go after worldly pleasures, but not after God? In this Song of Songs, God says that it is the desire of all desires to desire him. And C.S. Lewis um, wrote about something like this, in the weight of glory, he said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Infinite joy. Do you know what that means? What do you love most? Think about that. What do you love most? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you been intoxicated with him? Have you lost yourself in contemplation of the triune God? Have you heard him speak forgiveness to you 
and you've melted down at his feet. Every beloved is a king, but your beloved is the king of kings. Have you been moved to praise him? To pray for more of him? Have you sought him in his word and rejoiced to find him there? Do you know what it means when Paul says that he would rather be apart from his own body if it meant being with the Lord? The fact that God intends our relationship to him to be likened to the passionate love between a bridegroom and a bride, it sings volumes of theological truth. What kind of God is this that would liken our relationship to to this kind of thing? What kind of God is this? The God whose eternal being is three persons in love, not a stoic, dispassionate love, but, uh, but a delighted, ardent abandon. That's what God is really like. And he wants his creatures to delight and be satisfied, and he offers us gratuitous goodness, sheer excess for our enjoyment, just for our enjoyment. He made us in his image with the capacity for his own kind of ardent love. He made us with that capacity. We have such strong desires because we've been made like him and we've been made for him. And in one sense, the lover loses herself in her love. She loses herself. She's out of control. Peter Lightheart says, desire had better be out of control or it is not desire. We're helpless in desire. And the song makes no attempt to domesticate desire. Wisdom and virtue are not found in mastering desire, but in the maturing of desire. Wisdom and virtue are found in the maturing of desire. We don't, here's an application, we don't need to scoff when we see two youngins who are Madly in love, right? Crazy in love. We can see in that relationship a delightful, though perhaps immature, a delightful glimpse of of God's kind of love, a love in which we can easily be lost. So uh, when I was 23, seems like a long time ago now, I took Jerry up to Latrell Falls. We sat above the falls. It was a beautiful summer day, and I recited a poem that I had written for her and memorized, and I asked her to marry me. I read that poem yesterday, and I'm tempted to blush with embarrassment when I think of all the silly, goofy things that I said and did, right? But everyone who knows us would say it's the wisest thing I've ever done. It's the wisest thing I've ever done. Um, So in one sense, the lover loses herself in her love. But in another sense, the lover finds herself in her love. Even as, this is how it works in God's own being, the father finds himself. He he has his identity in the fact that he has a son. He finds himself in relationship. He finds his identity in his beloved son by the Holy Spirit. Many many people in our culture, uh, another application, might think it's wise to wait a long time, kind of get married when you're 30, when you, after you've discovered yourself, right? After you really know who you are, then you can be 
with someone. Uh, you're not ready to enter into a relationship of love until you've really spent a lot of time in your adult years finding yourself or establishing yourself, right? creating an identity for yourself. But we were made to discover who we are in relationship. We find ourselves in love. There's no true identity apart from love, apart from those that we love. And ultimately, our identity is, uh, is not, it's not just established on uh, a, a marriage relationship or any other kind of relationship in this world. Ultimately, our identity is established in our love relationship with Jesus Christ. Because the, the truest, fieriest, marital passion between man and woman, it just pales in comparison to the divine love between Christ and church, between God and your soul. The best of all earthly relationships pales in comparison. This relationship, this eternity-defining union is available to anyone, married or unmarried, young or old, man or woman. The Bible doesn't just speak about a disembodied love, but a longing even for physical closeness to the risen Lord. Because if we're not with him now, it kind of hurts, right? It's, it's a passion, it's a longing for something we don't yet have, but that we will have. We will. It's a longing for physical closeness. We will ultimately enjoy it in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a promise bought by, by his own blood at the cross. It's guaranteed to you that you will live forever in actual physical proximity, in real intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's promised to his bride. It's through his own incarnation, through his sacrifice, through his resurrection. It's guaranteed because of who he is and what he's done for you. And this is wisdom. This is wisdom. It's the wonderful kind of divine yet human, very human wisdom that God offers to us. And again, Peter Lightheart says, the highest wisdom about the world, all skill in living, is tied to sexual wisdom. Sexual knowledge is the model of knowledge. The eschatological knowledge, because at the end, the world will be bride. Because of that relationship between God and his church, Christ and his people. Because it's given to us in terms of a sexual union. We see that. It's a, it's a marital union, a physical union, that, that are the terms in which this is communicated to us in the scriptures. We can know that that kind of wisdom about that kind of relationship characterizes real wisdom from God, that kind of closeness, that kind of intimacy, that characterizes um, real knowledge about God. And because this is the kind of God that we have, and because it's the kind of salvation that we have in our union with him, salvation is spoken of in terms of union with Christ, and because it's the kind of wisdom we have in our intimate knowledge of him, intimate knowledge, we have delightful love prescribed to us for our marriages. It's because this is the God we have and the salvation we have. We can live it out in our marriages. And sorry, this doesn't apply to everybody, right? But it's the major application here right in front of us. Husband, is your name, is your character, 
Is the way that you love your wife, is it to her better than wine? Is it like oil poured out, like fragrance on the breezes? Is it beautiful and attractive and compelling to her? Is it something that she wants to celebrate? Wife, do you, do you tell your husband that you desire him with abandon like this? Do you celebrate each other in every kind of intimacy? Every kind. Soul and body. You have every good reason, every spiritual and theological reason to do that, according to this song. So considering all this, uh, maybe it shouldn't be strange that most of my counseling experience is with marriage relationships, either in premarital counseling or marital counseling. Um, uh, I, was premarital, I was doing some premarital counseling with a couple several years ago, different church, um, and they squirmed when I mentioned the fact that we would discuss sex in one of our sessions together. We, we'd read something from the Song of Songs and talk about that as it uh, regarded their upcoming marriage, and they actually refused to discuss it citing that it was, it was too private. No, we don't need to talk about that. Right. Um, theologically speaking, biblically speaking, the gospel intersects with everything in our lives, especially with our marriages, maybe even most of all, especially with sexual intimacy in our marriages. So if you are struggling with things in that arena, if you have problems with false versions of intimacy, the distortions or perversions that capture our hearts in so many ways in this world, things like pornography, um, then you need to talk to me or you need to talk to one of our other elders about it. Uh, I'd make that a command if I could. (laughs) You will receive absolutely no condemnation from us. There will be no shame in coming and telling us about uh, your struggles. We believe that one of our greatest opportunities to reflect God's love on a regular basis is to work toward the flourishing of our marriages and if your sexuality is broken in your marriage your relationship's broken in your marriage um, you might not prefer to think of it this way but it really is one of the most important areas of your life and the best help that you can get is gospel help and the good news is you have a God who takes people who live in brokenness and shame I mean this is the theme of the whole scripture he takes people like us and he makes us whole and he helps us to live in the freedom and the joy of true love by uniting us to the beloved who's the desire of nations the church should be a place where that fulfillment is found as we turn together as the bride to her bridegroom amen let's pray Father, a lot of us are afraid of real intimacy, of exposing ourselves to you for the shame of you seeing us as we truly are and rejecting us. And yet you know us better than we know ourselves, and you have not rejected us. You've come into our lives in the person of your Son. You've come into the world in the person of your Holy Spirit. You've come into our very hearts, and you will not leave us or forsake us. You do not condemn us. You have forgiven us all of our sins, and you've promised everlasting intimacy and glorious union. 
And this is beyond us, and it is uncomfortable to us. But we pray that you would um, make it more real to us, the kind of love that you have among the members of the Trinity, the kind of love that you share with people who are created in your image, the way that you have um, set up the trajectory of history and eternity to take us into your chambers. We're not exactly sure what that means, but, uh, but we do want to taste and see that the Lord is good. We want to taste divine love, and we want our human loves to reflect that divine love. So we pray for your help, your spirit's help, the help of your gospel as we consider your love for us, our desire for you, and the way we live in our marriages and all of our relationships. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.